Hey there, welcome to Cold Turkey Podcast. This week, I'm sitting down with Laura. Laura is part of a three guests, well, two guests and one get-together guest plan, which is Laura, which is the mom of Tom. And we're going to get the three together at the third episode to kind of discuss the aftermath of all of uh, our conversations. So Laura is my first guest. Then you're going to hear about Tom. And after that, you should hear about Laura and Tom and me together so we can discuss that. So quite an interesting uh, little project we have. And it was fascinating to have a conversation with uh, Laura. As she mentioned, it feels like we're having a meeting together and we discuss uh, our own journey. We discuss a lot about the state of the pandemic and the effect it has on mental health and the relapses risk and the depression and the suicide risk and overdose risk. And um, I loved it. I loved it because uh, we need to be aware of that. We need to make ourselves available for those that feel alone and feel lonely. And um, as I mentioned on the on the recording with Laura, I'm available. You can find me on the on the website at cold, podcastcoldturkey.com. So it's podcastcoldturkey.com, all in one word. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. You can f- reach out to me uh, on my email address. It's alex at podcastcoldturkey.com. And by any form, if you want to forward this to a friend that you know that is either at risk or you feel that he's not feeling so great, um, don't hesitate in forwarding this, in forwarding this to to your friend and family and and whoever. Um, it is something that I'm I'm worried about, and I, I I will not I will not stop repeating myself about this, and and so uh, I wish you the best. I hope uh, you're feeling good and that uh, you're 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 having. Um, you can find great moments during those tough times. And uh, I introduce you to Laura and I hope you enjoy. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? Good. Good, Alex. Thank you. Um, you know, like it, it's uh, we're almost going to be at the, the one year mark of that um, pandemic. And um, I feel obligated to ask kind of a, um, a two, two, um, two answer question. The first one is, where are you located? And the second one is, how are you and how do you see the people around you handling the pandemic um, to this day? So the first question is, where am I currently right now? I'm in Florida. I'm in Vero Beach, Florida, uh, which is my residence. But I also spent a great deal of time in Colorado. So in terms of the pandemic, I would say that there is... um, a more, I wouldn't say relaxed in Florida, but it's the people are getting vaccinated. Uh, people are very um, tired uh, of the COVID. And so the, the rules are not as strict 
in the state of Florida in certain communities and counties. St. Louis, uh, which is a place I was born and raised, um, Vail, Colorado, are a little bit more formal with how they're handling it. Uh, they don't have, St. Louis is probably number 50 in getting the vaccination. So it's very closed. Um, in terms of what I see um, in Colorado, people are very outdoorsy, very active. They could, You can't ski. It's a little bit more of a production. Masks are required. People don't feel quite as isolated if they're, they're outdoorsy. Um, but there is an enormous health crisis in Vail Valley with drugs and alcohol. And um, it's increased with COVID. Wow. With um, where I am in Florida, I don't see, uh, you know, Florida has the same amount of alcoholism, addiction, depression, and so forth. As a matter of fact, Southern Florida has a lot of 12-step rehab programs, a lot of sober houses just a little south of me. But I think that, it, that the feeling that I get from everybody is that, um, you know, people are frustrated and I don't want to get into politics, but politics have been frustrating for people. So there is a huge increase in drinking and there's a huge increase of time spent on social media in all areas, yep. which it, and there's no boundary with age. I think younger people spend to, seem to spend a little bit more time on social media. I don't really have the data to back that up. But I, I do see the increase in anxiety and uh, suicide kind of equally dispersed um, in, in our country. But I do know that right now, Vail Valley per capita is really in a lot of, a lot of pain and a lot of trouble with, with the health issue of addiction and, and mental illness and anxiety. It's, um, and people are also more aware about it. So people are talking about it. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting that you mention the lack of data because it's definitely something that I feel that we're, we're lacking right now. Uh, it's yes, it's hard. It's hard to compile the data right now. I mean, they can, they can say, okay, we've had X amount of suicides. We've had X amount of deaths from, from alcoholism, but it's hard to gather the data on those people that have relapsed, those people that are depressed. Um, it's just not there because they're not forthcoming about yeah. their own situation. And there's a long question about when will someone realize that mental health issues and problematic can outweigh the spread of the, of the disease of the, that, of the pandemic. There's no question that, that addiction and, and mental illness are at the top of the list of things that need to be addressed right now. Far more people are dying from that than are dying from COVID. Yeah. And, and that to me is, um, I, I haven't heard a lot of politicians talking about it. Absolutely I, I haven't. Not. We, and it's really discouraging to me. It's alarming, actually. For me, it's quite alarming because I, right off the bat, that's the first thing. Because I've, and I'm, 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 I repeat myself about this, but I used to do in-person meeting, for example, and the shock of facing 52 little windows in front of a computer monitor and to expect that I'd get the same benefit from that than sitting in a room 
in person. That means driving my car, taking my ass off, even cold weather, driving my ass off to that place, which means that I, I there's an intent behind that. There's all that that whole process is an intention of making making something good to me. And so yes. going there in person and attending a meeting that's an hour, an hour and a half and driving back home, it has nothing to do with going downstairs or going in my office and opening up my computer and connecting with two clicks and seeing 52 virtual people that could or could not be what I think they are because whatever... I could put a recording of a freaking Mickey Mouse there, you know, like it, it's, you know, like it's, it's, uh, so the, 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 that shock for me was major and I have, I have solid years of abstinence and sobriety behind me. And so I couldn't imagine what it would be like if I had only came out of therapy, for example, and they'd say, Hey, connect to a zoom and you should be good to go. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it is so scary. I, I mean, the, it, to me, it's a hard, hard um, to achieve that energy level that you get from being in the rooms with other people. It's that warmth, that connection. And, and, and you're right, the drive time and you're in thought and, and you drive away and you think, and um, it, it's just extraordinary what meetings can do I mean, that's, it's so funny when I got sober, I remember saying that I was never going to drink again and I would consider, um, you know, going to an AA meeting, but it wasn't going to be my life <laughs> because for some reason I thought, oh, I've got this, you know, I've been, I've, I've been able to control so much of my life and yep. obviously not my alcoholism or I wouldn't have been in the shape I was in <laughs> when I realized, oh God, what am I doing? I, I need to stop. But, um, to me, it's um, it is a source. No matter what kind of recovery you have, being able to sit in a room with people and relate is the most important thing. And I see people in my Zoom meetings that maybe have six months of sobriety. They got sober during COVID. I've seen people relapse that come back. So, but they know what that feeling is like. Yeah. But for the newcomer, it's it's very difficult. And I I am willing to go meet anybody anywhere. Uh, that I can just so that there could be a face to face and, and there's a real person there. And I admire, uh, I admire and, and just look almost in awe people that have found sobriety and some, some kind of serenity in only and exclusively attending zoom meetings. I mean, doesn't that tell you that no matter who your sponsor is, no matter who your friend group is, if you have made up your mind Whatever. And yeah. It, 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 the worst sponsor in the world isn't going to keep you from staying sober. And, and they're, and, and sponsors are excellent. I mean, there's, they're donating their time. And so it's not a criticism, but I think it's like just bar the door because I am, I am, I am ready to go. I've made up my mind. I think for people that are on the edge, this could be a, one of life's most challenging times because of COVID to get sober. And so therefore I get into my head and I think churches can't be open. Well, they're, they're starting to open on a limited basis, but the most important things to people's spirituality and well-being have shut down. You can, you can put 
is many people in a tent outside the United States for dinner, they can't eat inside where there's probably some sort of ventilation, but you can put them outside in a tent. That doesn't make sense, but you can't go to an AA meeting. That's crazy. I've you had, can't, yes, it is. I've had a, a guest that had to fight this. Uh, they, they actually made the news that they, they had to fight this. Are they in Ohio? Um, they actually fought this at the city council as a as an essential service, and they won. And so they it, were it, good. It is. I it, mean, it is an essential service. It is so important, and people, you know, we meet in a lot of church basements, and there are many forms of recovery, as we've discussed. Yep. And it's not just. I don't want to turn people off by saying AA. That's just what works for me. There's so many other smart recovery. Um, there's something called the Phoenix where kids can go to the gyms and, and they share that time with people that are strictly sober outdoor activity. Um, as you said, drumming, spiritual, uh, development, there are all kinds of ways that whatever you connect with best that works for you. But to me, I think it's almost criminal not to let people, um, meet, to take care of their health and well-being, they've it's shut stuck. down. They've shut down everything here, um, and so I always complain and talk about this, saying we have no clue of the long-term dramatic impact this will have on our on our on our people. No, that's right. No idea. Even my wife, my wife has, and I have such an healthy relation and last friday we actually looked at ourselves around around dinner time and said wow it's tough it is it is isn't it <laughs> it was just like almost simultaneously we looked at each other was like it's tough it's really tough i'm not i'm not the my wife is the social party type, really, you know, like she loves having like her girly dinners and all that stuff. I'm more of the introvert and even I can't wait to meet with friends, you know, so so um, I love when she goes at her girly dinners and I have my weird documentaries or you know, whatever, um, you know, I can sit and, and, and do whatever and... Um, but right now it's just, yeah. I mean, so, so even for, for solid and healthy relationships, it's taking a toll. So, uh, so any, any fragilities that you have in your relation is going to be, is going to be, um, tragic. You know, like it's going to be bad. It's, it's tough. One of the things that I do to sort of maintain, um, my emotional well-being is to stay connected with people that I consider to be winners in their own recovery. And I talk to them. I, I try to walk with them because you can walk outside mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, regardless of the weather, walk and talk and share and laugh. And, and uh, that to me has been my survival. Uh, my husband is not in any recovery program. He does not need to be. He's um, a very healthy guy, uh, but getting to your point um, about space, every healthy relationship needs space. Absolutely. And it just does. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I find that 
you know, when, when my husband has the television set on, it just, now it's just getting louder and louder and louder. And we're not talking. And I'm like, oh gosh, you know, we just need, we need to separate it into different areas of the house yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And, um, but, but getting back to the, the COVID and, and, uh, we discussed it before we went on air is that, um, you know, addiction, and um, and some mental forms of, of mental illness and depression are diseases of isolation. And I worry about people that feel like, you know, they're in trouble or they and they live alone and and now they can isolate. Who's checking on them? How, how much are you drinking? How much are you smoking pot or doing drugs? What are you doing during this time to be productive? You're hosting a podcast. I'm guests on podcasts. I published a book. You know, it took me three years. It's not like it happened during the pandemic. <laughs> but, um, you know, trying to keep ourselves, uh, our brains working and, yeah. uh, get, and getting outside and connecting with people however we can is probably the most important thing. And I think can, that's what relationships are all about. And human human um, health is all about it or are the connections that we make with people and we make those connections in rooms in meetings yeah and we have to we're interdependent we 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 like to be with people even as introverts who wants I, to sit in their house the whole entire day it, it, I, I, I can attest that it, it, it's, it's not working. You know, I like you can't do that. <laughs> no, it's pretty criminal. I, I, you know, I understand that there is a pandemic and I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. And I'm not saying that people haven't gotten very sick because they have, but I also feel like this was a huge mistake to shut everything down. Yeah. I think that the, the, the panic and reaction uh, to do this was detrimental. We need to be exposed to germs. I'm not a doctor, so I really don't have any business talking about this. So let we it be all, known that I'm we just all have, Well, well, Laura, we all get, we all actually, it's not about doing research more than being witness of what's going on. And, and, and based on actually the community, which we, we spend the most time in, we see it. We see, we see people getting worse and worse. We see emotionally people getting more depressed, and and you know, the the conversation gets darker, and 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 so you know, even not being a doctor, I I consider myself somewhat of quote unquote specialist in the field in which. I am meaning the the sobriety field, right? Right, right. And, and so, the 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 feeling I get from it is that the dialogue is getting is getting darker. Yeah, the, it is. The it state, is. the state, the emotional state of the people at which you communicate with is 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 not good. It it doesn't sound good. Um, and the other thing I can say, I've just started. And it's my bad, but I've just started reaching out, meaning that every podcast, I make myself a, a pretty much a mandate to tell the listeners, if you do feel alone, if you do feel that you, you don't know who to spit out how much you feel like shit right now, there are so many ways to reach out to me through Instagram, to my, my, my website, 
there's many, many ways at which you can write me a note saying, I don't feel great. Would you mind having a talk with me? Or, I mean, for me, it's, it's like I said, it was, I, 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 I was just thinking pretty much out loud what, what I could do to help. And I've started a few episodes ago saying, find me. I'm easy to find. There are many ways to, you can write me an email, DM me on my Instagram, write me on Facebook, reach out to me on my, my website and just reach out. People. And people do it. They do it. I mean, I have a uh, social media, Instagram. I have Instagram for a book that I've written with my son um, about our own experiences um, as I, I've been in recovery for alcoholism and have experimented with a variety of drugs, very most of them. And my son is in recovery for alcohol and, uh, and drugs, opiates, things like that. And, um, you know, the, I have also an Instagram for the book and I have a website. So on the website, I've had people reach out to me because there's an email address on my Facebook page. I've had people reach out to me and it's, it's been about all kinds of different things. I mean, I had somebody reach out to me about Tom's, my son's experience of being bullied in high school, which uh, we write about in our book, but it doesn't really uh, mean that yes, bullying caused addiction or alcoholism, but it was trauma. And so these conversations are coming my way and I, I really am open to it. I will do anything I can to, like you said, to respond and set up a phone conversation, maybe email first and see how I can help and what I can do, um, even if it's just listening. Exactly. Um, and, and, and it's important to say that because as you mentioned, we're not doctors. That's not our job. I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just saying that what's, what's funny is right now I'm reading the book of the origin of the writing of the big book from the AA. Uh-huh. It's all about, it's the, I think it's writing the big book, the name of the book. And it's all about the genesis of Bill Watson, one of the co-founder of the fraternity, uh, how he, he ended up writing that book. And oh, nice. it, that's great. It's so interesting, fascinating. And through the reading of that book, I find that at the end of the day, there's a few things that I, I'm, 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 I'm not through. It's a huge book and I'm not through. I'm probably at a third. One thing for sure is that the, one of the most important thing that the co-founder wanted to, for people to remember is that as long as you have the desire to stop and to quit, you're welcome. Everything else is a suggestion. Even the That's steps, right. even the steps, even the tradition, everything else is a, sugge- is a suggestion. The other thing is that his home in New York was the hub of everything until they found some commercial place or whatever we call it. But initially, every time they found someone that had an alcohol problem, they would set him to Bill's house. Why? Because communication and interaction was the base of all healing. So 
for me, it, it's fascinating to read through that. Sure, there's all of the writing of the big book. That's that's something else. But but the the kind of the foundation of hey, I, I James is not doing good. We just found him. He's at the the they use a lot of the town hospital in New York. He's in town hospital. Send him to bills. Send him to bills. Everyone would. Um, would actually reunite at Bill's house for the sake of helping someone that was in need and was wanted to actually stop drinking. Um, and for me, reading about this, because there was there's so many interpretation of of any twelve step programs or any th there's so many interpretations right now that mm -hmm. I, I I needed. To resource myself at the beginning, what is where does it all come from? Did they really want it? Did they really mean that? Did they really? No, that's not it. Everything is recommendation. If you desire to quit, come in, talk with us, and as as myself, an alcoholic and a drug addict, listening and exchanging with someone else that has an alcohol and drug substance abuse problem. We're going to understand each other and we're going to connect in a way that that's undescribable. Yep. That connection is, it's beyond your wildest imagination yeah. and hope uh, because it's, um, we have people that care in our life. We have, we have doctors, we have clergy, we have therapists, we have, and then we have people that have the experience in those professions as well. But I, I find that it's it's just so much more generic, and and to try to talk to somebody that that doesn't share the common desire or the experience of having had trauma in your life, or you know, have hasn't had the experience of of what it's like being a full blown alcoholic or drug addict. Um, all it does is make you feel like you're spinning your wheel. I I remember when I when I got uh, sober. The night before I actually had my, uh, well, the night I had my last drink, um, I was, you know, I'd had way too much to drink and I got into a car accident and I went home, my airbag deployed, but somehow I got my car home and I woke up the next morning, my phone was ringing. It was one of my sons. This is when they were little and he was spending the night out and he needed to be picked up. He wasn't feeling well. And I walked out and I saw this car and I thought, which kid of mine took my car on a joyride? I had had a blackout. So anyway, I got in the, in my husband's car, picked up my son, came back home. I called an alcoholic that I knew who had been in recovery for so many years. He was a friend of my mother's. My mother was also in uh, the 12 step program and she had un uninterrupted time up until she died. And she, she passed away sober, which is extraordinary. And, um, but anyway, I called this friend of hers who I knew growing up and he said, come meet me. I jumped in the shower, uh, put my head over to wrap my wet hair in a towel. And all of a sudden this bump, started protruding in my forehead. And my son, Tom, who I wrote the book with, saw it. He said, mom, what the hell just happened to your head? And I said, well, I, I, I hit it last night 
in a car accident, but I didn't have a bump. But all of a sudden I had this big, huge bump. He called an ambulance. So I went to the hospital. I told the neurologist, look, I'm an alcoholic. I had a blackout in a car accident. And he said, well, your blood work's all fine. You don't, you look very healthy to me. Um, but what happened to you was you hit your head and I can tell how you hit it on the car and how the airbag hit you and you bounced back and exactly where in your car and on your head, you did hit it. Um, and you're lucky that this bump came out because it was a subdermal hematoma and it, you really could have, you could have died and the blood finally found a place to go. But my point is, is this doctor was telling me, you don't remember anything because you have a head injury. You didn't have a blackout. Your liver enzymes are fine. And, you know, I, I suppose, um, you know, I, I looked healthy and that's really, as we know, only a health, uh, a matter of time, yeah. um, because my emotional health and my spiritual health was destitute. I was in terrible shape. Um, I eventually would have looked more like, you know, my insides, I suppose. But at that point I was still, you know, I was 48 and it's all about looking good and making everyone think you're okay. But my whole point is I tried to talk to a doctor about it. And, and he was, he just, he said, I don't see it and had, wasn't the least bit interested. And fortunately I had called this friend of my mother's who I ended up going to meet and, and then it just sort of took off from there. We connected. Yeah. He was sober. He understood. He, um, he said, if you want to quit drinking, you'll be able to quit drinking. These are some recommendations that I have that might help you along the way. And it's just that simple. Yeah. It is. Um, as I do every week, Laura, I'm going to be rewinding that life story tape of yours. Uh, I'm bringing you back to pretty much like I want you to send me the picture of the, the family picture. But when do you remember is either the first time you use or any use around you that feel has impacted you. you? You talked about bullying, which is sometimes trauma initiates or sparks something. Um, yeah, I just want you to bring us back to that moment. Because sometimes it's you know, like my, my part, my, on my mother's side, it was partying a lot. And I have good memories of these parties. And you, you probably, you know, like, I guess I wanted to mimic this a bit. Um, but yeah, so so bring me back there. So uh, I grew up in a a family of alcoholics. My mother's mother was an alcoholic. Of course, that wasn't spoken because she was the wife of a politician. So nobody talked in the 50s. Nobody talked about it. Uh, my mother was clearly an alcoholic and she was a lot of fun in the life of the party and a, and a really lovely woman. But her alcoholism interfered with her ability to maintain that loveliness. I mean, she uh, became very depressed, very uh, uh, volatile, uh, you know, had two marriages that didn't work out. And, and my whole time as a young person, I thought, you know what? I am not gonna be a mother like that. I am not gonna be an alcoholic. Yes, she was the life of the party until she wasn't. And um, I admire her strength in getting sober And at the time I thought, well, if she can get sober, anyone can get sober. Um, 
And that was easy for me to say back then, but I was not going to be this alcoholic because I knew it was wrong and I was going to be a better mother and I was going to have more control over my life. But um, I remember the first time getting drunk, I was in in eighth grade. And um, what kind of kid were you? uh, I was a um, very active kid. I was a fun kid. I was an athlete. Um, I was not the best student. As a matter of fact, I was a very average student um, and sometimes a very poor student. I don't know that I had an attention deficit, but I certainly had no interest in uh, paying attention at school. And I was disruptive. You know, I liked the I liked getting attention. Um, and I do it in ways that were not always always great. As I got older, the, the way I would get attention was far worse. But um, I, I, fortunately, I was an athlete and I was successful as an athlete and that really helped. And I went to college and I graduated from Colorado College, which is a small liberal arts college in Colorado Springs. Very, very good school. Uh, very, very hard academically. And I really applied myself academically, but I partied like you can't imagine. That's when I got into drugs. I got into doing cocaine and in huge amounts. Um, and I would say that was the primary drug that I did. Somehow I graduated on time. I don't know how I did it. Cocaine. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Stay up till two or three in the morning and, uh, and We got our answers right there. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, I felt like I was a fun loving person. I had, I was very social. I had, you know, in high school, my friends were really important to me because my home life was not great. Um, as much as I loved my mother and loved my, my dad was not an alcoholic from what I could tell. He died when I was 18. My stepfather was definitely an alcoholic and I loved the guy. Siblings, I mean, brothers and sisters in there? Uh, yes. Um, so I am, I, I have an older sister uh, who is not in the program and does not need to be in the program. I have an older stepsister who's an Al-Anon, but she is not, does not need to be in the program. I have an older stepbrother who is, uh, he's in the middle of the boat. And I have a younger stepbrother who's not that much younger, who did go to a rehab program for 30 days and just said, you know, it's not for me. And then I have um, a half brother who's younger. And so I'm the alcoholic in the family. Um, I think most of my siblings experimented with drugs and had their moments of partying. Um, and I love every single one of them. But at the time that I was, um, in high school, my mother was divorced from my stepfather. My father had died, uh, as well when I was in high school, but my mother, well, let me backtrack. It's very confusing and it may be a little bit boring, but my mother was married to my father and got divorced from my father when I was not even one. Okay. And my mother married a good friend of my dad's and okay. my dad and my stepfather remained friends. It was, it was awesome. For it was sure. Cool. My dad was a very gentle, kind, fun man. And my stepfather was, at the time, the life of the party. And then as their, their marriage went on, it became more and more volatile and they got divorced. 
I maintained a great relationship with my stepfather, maintained a, a good relationship with my mother, but they were both in their own corner, uh, drinking more and more and more and more. And it was very sad. So my step siblings, which were my stepfather's kids, I did not live with. I grew up with them on the weekends and on family vacations. Um, my father also got remarried before he died. And hence, that's why I have a half brother. So I grew up mostly with my sister on a, on a continuous basis. And, and she was five years older than I. So when she went to college, I was alone living with my mother. And that was a nightmare for me. It really was. I mean, it was, she didn't get home till three in the morning. I, I never knew where she was. I felt like I was the parent. Um, and I definitely was a caretaker. No question about it. Wow. So, um, and then she eventually got sober. She was a, a lovely lady. She really was. I mean, she was a lot of fun. She was great. I love the fact that she got sober. My stepfather never did get sober. He lived to be 80 years old and um, didn't drink the last few years of his life because he was ill. And I, I thought that was great. You know, I he lived with us for the last two years of his life. He lived with my husband and me and my family. And I remember I was having a conversation with him and he said, uh, I walked into his room. He was living in the lower level, which was great. And he said, you seem like you're in a bad mood. What's the matter? Haven't you gone to your class? Because at that point I was sober. And I said, no, I didn't go to my class. And that's and probably he, why. <laughs> and as I am in a bad mood. And he said, God, I'm glad I'm not an alcoholic. Do you think I'm an alcoholic? And I said, oh boy. I said, that's a question only you can answer. And, best, uh, best answer ever, Laura. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not up to me to answer that question. Let's not open that can. Oh, God, that would have been a can of worms. But let's back up to my college years. So I graduated from Colorado College and I moved to New York City and I went to school, Parsons School of Design. I made it out of there in two years. I have no idea how. I did more coke. I tried heroin. I did. I was a mess absolute mess. I don't know how I made it through school and I had to maintain a B average at Parsons. So I, um, when I we just, look at it from that angle, Laura, we're fucking superheroes. I, I mean, that's we crazy. That's crazy. You tell that to even my wife. Sometimes I'm like, well, I was so stone. And she was like, what? She, she couldn't, you know, it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. Even for us, that after, in the aftermath was like, how did we do it? I mean, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we get through all nighters and going to graduate school and going to college? And, and, uh, gosh, there was a time period where, um, I, I just looking back, I don't know how I did it. And then I remember doing heroin and I was high for all weekend. And I thought, I can't do this anymore because I'm starting to get sick when I calm down. So I called my sister and I said to her, I said, I am in big trouble. I said, I'm coming down from heroin and I'm losing it. She said, can you get yourself to the airport? She said, I'm going to get you a ticket. You pick it up at the counter. You can do that back in the eighties. And, uh, so I got myself to LaGuardia and I got back to St. Louis and never did it again. I mean, I tried absolutely everything and I had no fear. And, and the basis, I guess, was just numbing myself, constantly numbing myself. 
and thinking that it was okay and rationalizing it in my brain. I'm young. I can do this. With, you know, with a few, you know, like a, a few, when you look back at these times, do you know what you were running away from or, or did you, you know, or, or it was just, you know, having the disease of obsession and compulsion in you and being fearless and that, that dynamite combination made it of all of the experiences that you're, you're, you're describing right now, or were you try to trying to patch or or band-aid something that was hidden behind that well you know there's always the thing beneath the thing i mean i believe that i felt like i was invincible i was fun i i definitely had this obsession of the mind there's and this just this one speed go and um but i think that that is I can say, oh, yes, I had the, the obsession of the mind and I was clearly addicted and, and all those sorts of things. But I think the reason why the thing beneath the thing is that I had anxiety. And I think that as a child, I was uh, abused by my, by my stepmother and she was horrible. She was browbeating, verbally abusive, physically abusive. And I think that um, I felt shame. And I felt like I was a bad kid and I felt like, um, all I wanted to be was loved. And I somehow, I was like a cat, like you could throw me against the wall like 50 times and I come running back because all kids want is love yeah. and attention. And, and we think things will change. And, um, it was a very traumatic experience. And I, I went to a lot of therapy to sort of understand, um, you know, the dynamics that I lived with, um, you know, a child that lived in a family of divorce and alcoholism is, is somewhat, um, unsettling and traumatic in itself. So, um, you know, I did do a lot of work. I've done a lot of work sober, but I did a lot of work while I was drinking. I, you know, eventually I stopped doing drugs. I just wasn't interested in doing drugs. I don't feel like I had any kind of withdrawals. However, the heroin after three or four days of doing it, I definitely had withdrawals. They were very, very, they were awful. But, um, you know, when I got into my, my later twenties after graduate school, I did not, I, I wasn't interested in doing drugs because yes, alcohol is acceptable. Yep. And, um, I might be a little bit crazy with alcohol, but I'm not that crazy. And, um, at that point I wasn't having blackouts. Uh, I don't know that I can control, could control it. If I went out to a party, inevitably I'd have too much to drink. You probably were convincing yourself that you could at the time. At 100%, because that's what the disease tells you. Drink more, you're fine. Drink mm -hmm. more, you're fine. Um, you know, it's that midbrain, you know, too, where I don't have any frontal cortex reasoning anymore. I think like a primal being, I uh, eat, I sleep, I do drugs. Yeah. You know, and as they say, the primal brain is like, eat, sleep, fuck, and do drugs. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, Precisely. Am I allowed to say that on there? Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> oh, shit. So um, somehow, though, when I stopped doing drugs, I didn't want any part of that. I wanted to drink less. I wanted to work. I had a 
a pretty decent job. I was a designer for about 30 years. Um, and I worked very part-time um, when I got married and had children. My disease seemed to, I don't think dormant is the right word, or maybe I wasn't completely full-blown. You would think by my behavior in college that I was definitely a full-blown drug addict and alcoholic. But I married a really nice man, and he did not do drugs. He was not an alcoholic. He was a stable rock, and we had children, the first three, pretty quickly. And um, I had a few hangovers as with young kids. And I thought, I can't do this. This is like, I can't function with my kids. So it, it, it seemed to kind of be a little bit quieter, although I could still whoop it up. You know, as I said in my book, I, um, we did move to Colorado and my kids went to school there and I had a great fun group of girlfriends. And we decided one night we were going to snowshoe up to this cabin in the mountains and have dinner and and the way down, we were all kind of hammered, and three of us hijacked a snowcat driver and made it and said, You gotta take us up while you groom the slopes. <laughs> like, you know, even in places where you know you have to put the wench in and you're you're in, you're on this angle where your face is smashed against the glass. I mean, what am I doing? I have kids at home. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> I mean I just thought, oh yeah, just life is one big party. Yeah, and I, 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 w- I would say that I've I've had my time of slowing down, but to make the image of being a mom at home, I would I would guess that your kid had probably the over the top lunches and the over the top homework sessions where you can see your 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 own obsessive compulsiveness translate into other aspect of your life? Oh, 100%, because everything had to be perfect. And I had to provide everything for them. And we had to make it all just so, so they could be successful. Yeah. And uh, yes, absolutely. Everything was over the top. <laughs> there's no, there's no question. It's like, and you people out there, you look at me and you'll see this perfect little family. And exactly. um, I think, you know, obviously it, it caught up to me. Well, the funniest thing was, is I, I, at some point I resumed my therapy after having children and every therapist that I had, there were probably five of them caught on to what is it that is holding me back? What is going on? And, and when they started to kind of figure me out, I didn't want to see him anymore. So I therapy shop and the last therapist I had before I got sober used to ask me to say the serenity prayer with him. I'm like, dude, you are, no, I don't need to say that prayer. <laughs> you know I mean? And he was such a great guy. And, um, it's like but o- I did, holy water. It's like holy water. <laughs> oh shit. He's like, yes, I'm the devil. And you are trying to purify my soul. Cause we know it's dark. It, we know it's bad, but I, um, you know, and after I got sober, I spent a lot of very serious time with, with someone who, um, as a therapist is just extraordinary. He's been in the program a very long time and, uh, he's worked with my children. He's worked with, uh, in particular, Tom, who you will meet next week, who I wrote the book with, and he's just an amazing guy. And, um, 
we really did a lot of very deep, serious work because as he said, there's what's the thing beneath the thing. I mean, yes, I drink. Yes. My family has a predisposed genetic disposition or of alcoholism in the family. Is it genetic? Yes, I'm sure it is. Did I, did I tap into it? Oh, you bet I did. Did I grow up in a healthy functional household? No, I did not. So I guess there are a few questions that people can ask, like, tell me what the relationship as a therapist. They say, if you tell me what your relationship was like with your mother, I'll pretty much understand a lot about you. And the other thing is, um, is there addiction in your family? And, and, and the other thing is that out of the, my one brother and one sister, no one else have this in them. Um, so I pick, you know, like I won the lottery of my, of my mother's side alcoholism. Um, the other thing I, you know, I always tell the same story at springtime, my father for my father's nothing short has nothing in common with an addict, nothing. I would, you know, he has his phases, but he, he's not an alcoholic, need, not, neither a, a drug addict, but I guess I'm five or six years old. It's springtime. And I'm guessing for physics lesson, my father shows me how to use a tube and empty a snowmobile by pulling on the tube in the gas tank and transfer this into uh, like a gas container. So Mm -hmm. for the sake of kind of parking the snowmobile for the old summer and spring season, he he asked me to do this. So shows me how to do that. Pull, 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 drop in the the, um, container. And so empty the snowmobile. Now, sure enough, I'm six years old, miss a few times. And because of the gasoline emanation, I get stoned. I'm six year old. Uh-huh. 99 or 92% of kids would have been scared shitless. I'm not. And I'm six years old. You liked year- it. You liked it. I loved it. <laughs> I, I loved it and I yes. intelligent enough to repeat it there was no after that first accident the second and third and the fourth time weren't accidents I provoked it and so I always think back of that moment of the genetic thing I didn't know what, what being an alcoholic or a drug addict was all I knew is that the great majority of kids would have been scared to their bone and would have cried mama if they had got that feeling of a gasoline buzz that is amazing i i i didn't i didn't scream for help at all and i was six so this the next flash i have i'm stoned to the gills laying on the snowmobile seat and my father comes, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm as- hallucinating sounds and visuals. And he realizes that I must be stone or I don't know. He doesn't remember. And so all he does is put, put this away and said, and so you, 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 your, um, your stomach gets sick and you know, it's not good, but 
So he put this away and, and that was it. End of the story. It's much later in my life where you ask yourself those questions. Did, did I have this in me? You know, like, was it taught? Was it, I sure have friends that, that used alcohol and used drugs, but they, you know, like they, it was like their party time, you know, like thing. But when I look back at this precise moment where I was really, really young and that happened, the most majority of kids wouldn't have enjoyed it, but I did. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? It just made me think of a story. Uh, my mother used to give us paragoric all the time. Do you know what that is? No. Paragoric is a drug that they used to use for, I think it was maybe stomach aches when you're a kid, but it was an opiate. And, um, you know, I don't remember specifically having a buzz from that, but I, I, I think I fell asleep really easily. Um, but yeah, I think that time when I was, there were two times when I was 14 where I got drunk and my body just became obsessed with it, yeah. with the alcohol. I mean, there, it wasn't like, oh, let's try it. I liked it the minute I tried it. And, and sober and abstinent today. I always need to be careful about pretty much anything. I need to be careful. I work in sales, right? So if I get, I know that a big commission check is coming, I need to watch myself. I need to be careful about how my brain processes it, how my brain starts playing tricks like that little fucker is. You know? yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, like just like, mm, you know, and then the, um, gifting yourself because you so much quote unquote deserve it and and all that that stuff and it's funny because my wife will lovingly say that I'm passionate quote unquote about things but it can become obsessive if I do a research on what kind of podcast equipment I need for starting a podcast it becomes such a crazy search and a crazy research that by the end of it I'm just, I know so much about this, you know, like it's just nuts. We're, we're two weeks away from getting a new dog and my wife is going nuts right now because I'm, I'm filling the garage with shit to take care of the, the, the dog. You know? I'm a few <laughs> hours too, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm a few hours in of YouTube video watching of how I'm going to handle the, the dog. I mean, it becomes, and then, I, you know, it's funny because this, this afternoon I was watching a video and going, you're, you're going fucking crazy right now. You need to slow down. You just need to slow down. And so. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> I, I think I understand that. And if you're going to do something, you have to do it perfectly. perfectly. I, I mean, yes. And it's, it's amazing. And I like that gratification. And then we have to think about, though, how much of that is, is just human nature and how much of it is obsession. And, um, you know, for us, it's obsession, right? But there are other people that do like to do things to completion and do it well. Oh, and, that's I, I, and, and my sponsor will say, does it hurt you or others? And if it doesn't, embrace it. Right. You that's know, a good one. I like that. You know, so so at some point... I wouldn't be such a 
enraged salesman, for example, or you know, like enraged, maybe not the right word, but such a a passionate and 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 almost emotionally involved sales individual. If it wasn't for this gene in me that I have, you know, like I, I wouldn't be so involved in all kinds of activities that I do in my life if it wasn't for that that runs in my blood. Right. So, so for me, it's it's sometimes it's just a balance of, and then again, you know, like the the my my sponsor is seventy nine years old, has forty nine years of sobriety. So it always come back to that saying: Does it hurt you? Does it hurt others? Keep going, you're good. That that is a really really important saying. I like it a lot, and you know, I have to think about while you were talking, what happened when I quit drinking. Where did I transfer that obsession? Energy. So, yeah. right. That energy was towards getting well, but also, you know, I was a huge exerciser. You know, I had to run. Sometimes I'd run twice a day. Guilty. Okay. You know, so <laughs> now I am so okay with not working out. I am. I mean, I always feel better when I work out, but I'm not as obsessed with it. I feel like my obsessions uh, are uh, calming down quite a bit. However, if somebody asks me to do something, if somebody wants me to help them do something, I want it done yesterday. Yeah. You know, I don't, I need to have more patience and I need to sort of have that balance. And that's something I need to work on um, because I want to get it done and I want to get it done perfectly and, and, don't get in my way. And I think there's more awareness and truth after a while. Meaning of that old saying, does it hurt you and hurt others? Honesty to this. Because right. you, you can't you can bullshit yourself and ah, I'm good. You know, like I, I haven't slept for two days because I need the perfect dog cage, but I'm not hurting myself. Well, yeah. you are, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is a prime example. I just drove down here from St. Louis. It's a 16 hour drive and I drove straight through. And I did, and I, and I get in the car and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have two cups of coffee because I don't want to be wired. So I'm going to have one at five in the morning and then I'm going to have one at four in the afternoon and that's it. And no sugar, because that's the way I can drive 16 hours straight. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. It didn't hurt anybody. I was sure tired when I got here. But and and it's the same thing for training. You said you talked about training when um, some the the wife of my stepfather uh, of my father-in-law, sorry, um, got sick of lung cancer. I, I saw that she was a few months away from her own pension and, you know, of retiring. And I saw that happening and not that she was close to me. Um, but I, she was, you know, she was the wife of my father-in-law. Right. And, um, I saw that and it, it gave me such a, it hit me so hard that I decided to stop smoking and, and, and started training, but training training you know like just nuts over this so <laughs> spartan racing i think that summer i did probably between five and eight spartan races and obstacle racing and and just to a point where i could well i hurt myself you know like i hurt my back you know like i have a knee that's messed up now and and so i mean then to the question, does it hurt you or others? Well, my wife at some point is like, well, 
if because we have very short summers, you know, like it's a few weekends a year. And so she was like, okay, are we gonna spend some times on weekends together? Even though we live under the same house, it would be nice for us to have some free weekends. So can you limit yourself to, I don't know, three, four races per summer? Can you, can you look at not training seven days, a, seven days a week? Can you, <laughs> so that, that, that dynamic is all, always about being much quicker aware of when that happens and being honest with yourself. Um, and so I have to, you, you talked about the last day when you had the car accident, where you, you had that, that drink, uh, the last drink and you had the accident, but what do you know, do, do, do you, do you have memories of what was the thought process behind, you know, like I, I, I must stop, even though, you know, I have doctors telling you that you're all good. Good to go, girl. <laughs> yeah, basically. Right. Keep go keep going. So these are really great questions. And when I walked out and saw the car totaled the morning after I had, had the accident and saw the airbag deployed and the car was totaled, I as I said, I initially said, which child of mine took this out for a joyride? Because I had a blackout. But within time, I did get that memory slowly back that I, yes, I was driving, driving home from a Halloween party, dressed as a witch, which is what I did every year at my little persona of being a witch. And I didn't remember what I hit, but I had this car accident. And I, I feel like I had a true spiritual awakening um, that morning because I looked at the car and I thought, somebody's trying to tell me something. And if I don't listen, I could kill somebody or myself. And I, um, I felt relief. Like I had really admitted to myself, you are, you have a problem and you have to stop or you will die. And at the, at, at one point I couldn't, when I couldn't remember about the accident itself, I thought, did I kill somebody? Did I hit and run? What did I do? Once I realized I had been behind the wheel mm. because I didn't remember, I didn't remember where I crashed the car and, uh, things sort of came back to me gradually over time within about 24 or 48 hours. I started to recall some of it, but at that given moment, when I walked outside, I stood in my driveway and I, I thought I hear what I think at, at that time was a God of my understanding offering me a way out. And that is to stop and never pick up a drink again. It was, it was that powerful. I didn't know how to have a spiritual connection. I wanted to have one in my life, but I didn't know how. And my, my prayer life was weak. And when I did pray, it was always for things. Yeah. It was never a prayer of gratitude. It was never uh, a prayer of thanks. Um, but that, that day and that time, I definitely felt something very powerful. Um, and I thought, gosh, I wonder how, how often 
he's tried to reach me, he or she's tried to reach me, and I, I didn't hear her, I didn't listen. I hear, I hear today. And I haven't had a drink since. And not everybody's um, termination of, um, you know, active alcoholism has an epiphany story to it. Uh, it just doesn't. Some some people do, some people don't. For me, I did clearly, and uh, and it was um, it was truly a relief. And I know that I spent the next next few weeks crying but crying because I was relieved. I had all this energy of hiding it and, you know, and not wanting to face it because I was so afraid every time I looked in the mirror before I went out that I would have too much to drink. I was so afraid that I was in trouble and I knew it. And I was so afraid to ask for help. And I would Google rehab centers on Sunday mornings. And then I just closed the laptop and say, I'll do it another time. I was terrified. And what had been lifted that day, that day of utter and total surrender, mm-hmm. uh, which is what it takes, I think, was that those fears were lifted because the gig is up. I, I can't I can't go on anymore like this. I'm, I'm turning into something I specifically said I wasn't ever going to be or didn't want to be. And I was living a life of lies because I hadn't come clean with the fact that I was in trouble. And so when this happened, I felt like that um, epiphany was lifting the burden off my shoulders and saying, it's okay. It's just okay. It's okay to ask for help. And that's when I made the phone calls. It's, uh, it's all right. And so how did you, how did you take on that journey? What was the kind of the the first, you know, like what were you recommended initially? And, you know, like how did you handle this? Because obviously, you know, like you just mentioned, you know, like you were terrified of whatever would come next after admitting or, 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 or showing your true self. So in my active addiction, admitting that would mean that I have failed. Admitting that would mean that I didn't have control over my life, that I'm not the perfect person I want everybody to think I am that my whole family life is not the perfect family life. Um, And I didn't want to ever be found out. So that was the fear. Um, But that day when this was lifted from me, uh, as I said, I had to pick up my son Um, after he called, I picked him up and I came back to the house and I just sat in the driveway and I called a few people. I called the friend of my mother's who eventually I did end up meeting with. And I called another good friend of mine, uh, Meredith, who I referred to in our book, who uh, came, she was in the program. I had been with her the night before at her house. And uh, she, you know, just didn't even stall. She just came right over and said, I'll go to the hospital with you. The ambulance came. She went to the hospital with me. Um, we laughed. I cried. I um, Before I went, in the ambulance, my, I told my husband, I'm a huge doo-doo. I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, he said, uh, I don't know if I'm ready to tell you whether I think you need to quit drinking or not. I certainly am worried. And, uh, he was so kind about it that it made it very easy for me to feel safe. Um, you know, coming out of the closet with it. Yeah. 
Um, I was lucky that way. And um, I waited a few weeks before I told my children. And that's a different story. But um, I had, it, it was just all the timing was amazing. I had the car accident. It woke me up. I called people for help. I didn't care what anybody thought of me. I lost all fear of what people would say. Um, it, it just didn't matter. Now I'm 48 years old and, and that was, uh, back in 2008, I'm now 61. Um, it was, it was then even more acceptable at my age to get sober. Uh, but my ego was so, as I say, ego is edging God out, but the acronym, but I, it was so big and so inflated. I had, I just couldn't let anybody in to see any weaknesses because I had to be that strong person and take care of everybody. And uh, what a relief that day was for me. I wasn't afraid. It was like, I am, I'm free. I am free. I don't know what's next, but it couldn't be as bad as what I was in. I mean, the, you know, you think about the prospects of how am I going to do this? How am I going to handle this? How am I? It is so much easier and you have so much more time on your hands to do these things than you did when you were drinking or using drugs. We're so, I was so busy hiding things and so busy making up for lost time when I had a hangover, looking busy and always looking like I had it all under control. I didn't need to do that anymore. Was there, um, was there a need to introduce you to the taking it one day at a time, you know, like meaning, you know, like, you, like the, 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 I almost feel the effect of freedom that letting go had on you. But at the same time, um, you're an arm's length away from that drink, right? You know, like, you, no, you, absolutely. You know, and so were, were, were those principles of taking it one hour at a time or one day at a time introduced to you soon, early in the, in that process? Very early. So it was, uh, um, I think Halloween was a Friday night. Saturday, I did not drink. Sunday, I did not drink. Monday, I went to a, a meeting. And I stood up and I said, I had a car accident Saturday night and I'm an alcoholic. And everyone's like, holy shit. I didn't care. I just wanted to announce <laughs> it to the whole world. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I, don't, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know that I'm... I, I, I feel really good about being here and I feel relieved, but I don't know what's next. And so, you know, just the camaraderie and yeah. the warmth of people coming up to me and saying, do you have a sponsor? Well, no, I don't have a sponsor. It's my first meeting. Well, you need to get a sponsor. Here's my phone number. Um, I went to the meeting with my friend Meredith, which gave me a lot of support and I felt very safe. Um, but Damn. Yeah. Then the, the one day at a time thing, I still have to focus on one day at a time. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm, 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 I'm talking about this because it, long story short, I, 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 uh, I lose a screwdriver. <laughs> That's why I say it's a long story that I tried to shorten, but I lose my, I lose a screwdriver in my minivan. I go into psychosis. I call my father, call my ex-wife. I call everyone to tell how much I want to die because I can't 
find that screwdriver. So that can, you know, that's that's my bottom of the barrel. Oh, I, shit. I then crash a car. I lost a fucking screwdriver. <laughs> so <laughs> I reach out to my dad and he says, please drive slowly. Come home. I need to talk to you. And so I, I go, I go to his place and he doesn't even leave me time to get out of the car. He, see, he, see, he sits next to me. And all he had to say was, would you want to help yourself? And I, I did what would be considered the first step, you know, just admitting that I was powerless over yes. whatever, you know, and uh, which is what you did, right? You're like, you, you, you executed your first step perfectly that day, you know, like, which is, I feel free. Yeah. You just let go, you know? So, um, and I remember that day that I say, well, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, we may have a few ideas in mind because I didn't know that. But at the time, my, my then uh, girlfriend, the, the mother of the kids, was actually telling my parents that she would leave. And she had looked for a few therapy centers. But whatever they would have told me to do, or my father would have told me to do, I would have done. Mm-hmm. You were ready. Ready. Completely just just ready. Just, yeah, I mean, mature. <laughs> yes. Yes, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's for me, it was fear. I was ready. It's surrender. Yeah. It's 100% surrender. surrender. Yeah. And that's the first step. It's surrender. And, and along with that is the whole aspect of uh, step two and three kind of entering right in after my accident with an epiphany. It's, uh, and it's like saying, you know, you could have any sponsor you want at that point. You, you are so ready and and you're a sponge and you're going to, you're going to do anything it takes. And, and that's how I felt. Now, if you would have told me prior to that night that there would be a time in my life where I'd surrender and I'd feel relief, I wouldn't have believed it. Neither would I. At all. No. And, and I feel so incredibly grateful. And and I can even say that, well, obviously for me, <laughs> things worse than losing a screwdriver had, had happened to me before that. And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't that moment, you know? So what I'm saying is that I don't, I still to this day, two years in and recording that podcast, I don't know what happened at what happens at that moment. I just don't know. That's why I'm so fascinating by those moments. You know, and in your case, I don't know if anything worse had had to happen before that could have been a moment of just like get struck by the sobriety lightning and and waking up. But in my case, shit way worse than losing a fucking screwdriver had that happened to me and it didn't it didn't click but that day it did and i still don't understand it so it doesn't really matter what the awareness is or what the what the willingness comes about looking like but it did and so for me i can't help but think that that's some sort of outside Yes. Yeah. Whatever anybody believes, I don't want to turn anyone off by the God thing. 
I'm just saying, was it the universe? Was it God? Was it a higher power? Was it something greater than yourself that restored you to sanity? And yes, it was. And the timing and the timing of the, uh, the alignment of stars, if it wasn't for Meredith in your case, if it wasn't for my father in that, in my case, if it wasn't yes. for the timing of these people saying some precise words, which again can come back to there's someone has aligned those stars. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. It's, if all the things were in, in line though. Yeah. They just were. It, it, and, and maybe they were some other time and we didn't recognize it. I don't know. I, I can't help but think that there were other opportunities, but when... The, the, uh, when you're ready to listen, the teacher is appears. Exactly. And I, I think subconsciously I was so, Oh, I was so scared and so spiritually destitute and emotionally wrung out and, and so fearful. And, and I just welcomed it. And, the, and, and it's funny when you say, so when was I introduced to the one day at a time concept? I'd heard about it. My mother was in the program and yeah. I'd gone to Al-Anon before that. Oh, you did? But, oh, yeah. But all those people were too messed up for me. <laughs> too damaged. <laughs> too damaged. <laughs> they did not have their shit together at all. So I didn't have time for all those crybabies because really they just wanted to cry. And <laughs> I have a new I have a new awareness and understanding of that program. For and for, and, and by the way, important. listeners, for those that don't know what Al-Anon is, Al-Anon is actually for Anyone that's close, a relative, a, you know, like a son, a father, a brother, whoever you are, even a neighbor, if you, 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 you those meetings are made for people to understand the mindset of an alcoholic or a drug addict. So, so there's Naranon for the kind of the um, equivalent of Narcotics Anonymous, and there's Alanon, and there's so many others, but the two main that I can that's on top of my head is Al-Anon for alcoholics and Naranon for narcotics. And, um, and initially for the long story of, or, or originated from is that the two co-founder were males, a, a guy named Bob and then a guy named Bill. And when they would get somewhere and get together, their wife were kind of <laughs> bored to death in a room apart and they began to discuss and wives of the co-founder, especially the wife of Bill, thought that, wow, we have shit in common, you know? <laughs> and we need help too, because we need to take care of ourselves. Exactly. I mean, they can refer to you as a codependent, but old Lois, Bill's wife, she needed to take care of herself. And, and, and I grew up in an alcoholic family. I need to take care of myself because I have a lot of character defects that are stem from being very codependent. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's a remarkable thing. But at the time when I went to, I went through the back door, I got to AA through Al-Anon, but, in, and very rarely do I see somebody go to AA who ends up in Al-Anon and didn't need AA, but you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, oh my gosh, I just thought this is not for me, but anyway, um, uh, what, what was my point with this whole thing? Going back to the one day at uh, a time, one day at a time. Thank you. I, I, I knew the concept, but for example, after two weeks of being in meetings, 12 step meetings, which is how we refer to it with trying to keep the anonymity of AA out of it. I think it's okay to share 
that I am an AA because it's a very positive experience. It's nothing yeah. to be ashamed of. It saves and my life. You know, that's why there's yes. so, so much there's so much debate around it's not it's not about um it's it's first the how much someone i i can't what i consider the 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 anonymity of it all is if i go share myself or whatever and say hey i'm gonna tell you about the story of that lady i met last week named laura you know that would be that would be well fucked up a bit, but you know. <laughs> right, right. No, I get that. You know, I mean, you don't repeat what you hear. I mean, you you respect people, and if they they want to remain anonymous, that's certainly their their prerogative. Absolutely. For, for me, I feel like it's okay to share my form of recovery because it, you know, there there are misconceptions about AA being sort of cult like, and anytime you have a religion or. Um, something that works for people where they all sort of follow the same process, it can be considered that, but it really is just a way to recover and share your experience, strength, and hope with people. Um, but it, getting back to like two weeks after being in, in AA, I decided to, to go from step one to step nine and like make amends to my kids. I had no idea what I was doing with these steps. So when we say 12 steps, there's one through 12 and they're in order for a reason. And, and that's an impulsive move to jump ahead and, <laughs> and try and do those things. I wanted to stand up and say, Hey everybody, I'm an alcoholic and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. And I did this and I did that. I had a lot of uh, energy and, um, and wanted to share everything with everybody, no matter where it was. And, and so I had to kind of just tone it down a little bit yeah. over time. And, and that's where, just the constant reminder of the one day at a time and the serenity prayer and um, came into play. And, you know, we have, as sober people, we have the rest of our life to work on ourselves. And, and, I, and that's, I, that's my, the beauty of it. The, the, my, my, my sponsor actually always tell me to not work my steps, but to live my steps. Yes. And say, and say, just look back at today and think about it, you must have done a bit of the fourth, a bit of the fifth, quite a bit of the second, quite a bit of the ninth. And um, and I'm like, oh, you're right. Because you know, like I, I had put so much pressure on myself to work as they were described by some other, uh, other members. You know, like you need to work one through 12. And, and my sponsor was like, mm, I think you've lived pretty much all the steps already. And, you know, like I described my day and he's like, well, that's, that's the third step. And oh, oh, this, this is the fifth one. And, and realize that I, if I apply what I learn by going through the process of attending meetings and meeting with other addicts and addicts and, and alcoholics that in, uh, unconsciously you, you're, you're gonna, you're going to apply those steps and the way you live your life. And, and I think that's so true. And the only way we can stay in the middle of a boat with that is by staying committed to our form of recovery and to speaking to other alcoholics almost every day. Yeah. And, and even getting into your prayer life, if, if whatever you consider to be your higher power, power and, and some getting silent in the day to, uh, maybe feel your gratitude and so forth. It sounds like a lot, but 
but it's amazing after time how uh, you can commit yourself to doing that. When you don't do it, you start to feel a little restless, discontent, and all that sort of stuff. And and that's when you start to you know coast, and and coasting goes one way, and it's downhill. Yeah. And so um, just knowing that by sticking with the winners and and apply myself and talking to other alcoholics on a daily basis, it can remind me how important it is, um, you know, in, in terms of maintaining my emotional and spiritual sobriety. And, um, that's really important to me. And, and there's so many things that we do, um, to maintain it, like, um, just, you know, getting up in the morning and making your bed, for example, first thing and, and feeling grateful and maybe getting quiet and just, meditating, even if it's for five minutes or, or just getting silent with yourself is so important. And when we don't do it, we know we don't feel, feel great. So why don't we do it all the time? Yeah. Well, because we're human and we don't do, um, things perfectly and nobody says that we have to, it's just, as they say, it's progress, not, not perfection. But the further you get away from your form of recovery, the closer you get to relapse and, and, you know, your brain wants to tell you, oh, you've been sober. I've been sober for 12 years. Oh, you've been sober for 16 years. I bet you could go out and drink again. You know, your brain's like, okay, I got it under control. I've got my, well, you know, I've kind of worked on the trauma. I've worked on my family life. I've, I'm a good parent. I'm a, a good wife. I'm a good friend. I'm all these things and nothing's perfect, but now I can go out and drink again. Well, you know what? I can't, I yeah. never can. And that's the one day at a time thing. I don't have to think, well, I can't have a drink at my son's wedding. Well, that's okay. But today I'm not going to drink. Yeah. And, and, and that's all I have to worry about is today. Yeah. And that's really true. And, and that's true. If you could apply it with, I have so many character defects. If I could take any problem that I have on any given day, if I could just deal with what, what I know today and not worry about what, what that's going to mean for tomorrow. What's it, what can I do today? I, it's, it's an important principle. It's, and simple. That's the, that's the, you know, like that, that's the most, um, and, and believe us, it's tough. (laughs) It's tough to stay in the moment. It's tough to keep it at today. You know, like I get it, you know, like I, I, I get bill, you get bills, you know, like we, we, we get, you know, like, you know, like the mortgage comes by month hand and, and, and I mean, it's tough, but it's so simple at the same time, you know, like, um, so yeah, I mean, and, and you just answered my question, which is, you know, like some, you know, like in, in, in some of the last question I have for my guests is. What is an healthy sobriety diet? And you just mentioned it, you know, like a, you know, like a little silent time, taking care of yourself, of your mind, of your spirit, um, and, uh, and finding someone else that shares the same, um, the same journey of, of alcoholism and, 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 or, or addiction and, uh, an exchange with them. That's right. And you stick with the winners. You stick with positive people. Um, you help people in any way you can. You, you're you not a doormat. You can't solve other people's problems, but you can be there and you can listen and you can, you can share, you know, your own experiences. Um, you know, living life sober doesn't mean that you don't have problems. 
I mean, I've, I've had two heart attacks. I've lost my stepmother to suicide. My parents died. I mean, shit happens and we're not victims. Yeah. We're just not, we're not. And, and if I hadn't been sober during those moments, I would, I, I probably wouldn't be here to talk to you today. So those are not reasons enough for me to drink. Having a heart attack is not a, enough reason to drink. Having somebody in my family take their life is not a reason for me to drink because it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't help anything. It just, it would be a uh, open door to uh, a fatal demise for me. Yeah. And uh, as they say, you know, one drink is too many and 10 not enough. And that's where I'd end up. And considering the statistic that only 8% of addicted people is a lot, you know, like is able to save themselves. We're just it's, blessed. We're just blessed to have taken a piece yes. of that 8%. That's it. You know, like all I have is gratitude that, and at the same time, I, you know, like the, the last day of my therapy, um, you know, like they ask us to go in front of the group and, and kind of say a few words. And I said, well, I'm sorry people, but, uh, I just fucked you up because I stole a person. You know, like I, I stole 1% of that 8%. I'm leaving with one. So sorry about that. That's I, right. I, I'm taking it, you know, um, which was kind of a joke, but that was my, my desire to not fall into that, that, that 90 plus percent of people that, you know, either die, end up in prison, end up in jail, end up in, in the at the hospital. I didn't want that. No, we want to have our families. We want to be parents to our kids. We, we want to have a life uh, yeah. free, free of this obsession. And uh, it is possible. We know it's possible. The odds are not as good as we would like for the general population, but it is worth every effort to Absolutely. become vulnerable and ask for help. It's okay. It's okay to say, I need help. Yeah. Laura, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciated that talk. It is, um, I told you before we started recording and my listeners must be fed up with me repeating that, but that journey is egoistically benefiting me so much. It's helping me so much. And I've had people tell me that, you know, I could have helped them, but it, it is, um, it is such a nice gift that life has given me, you know, like it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with gratitude and, um, and now you're part of that journey. And I thank you for that, Laura, really appreciate it. Um, the last question I got for you is where can people find you where, you know, like you talked about the book Can you tell, tell us a bit about, uh, the book and you know, like where can people find you online and, uh, and yeah, Cer certainly. So the book that I've written with my son, Tom is called unraveled. It is, um, it looks like this. And it is a mother and son story of addiction and redemption by Laura Bolt and Tom Bolt. Uh, my website is unraveledthebook.com. And on my website, I have an email address. And if you want to talk, you want to share, you need somebody to listen, you can certainly email me and I will get your email and I will respond. So unraveledthebook.com. This book, if you can, it would be great if you could support your local bookstore. It, it's a digital book, so it has to be ordered. It's not stocked. 
but they can order it. And because it's digital, you should have it in a few days, two or three days. Um, if that does not work for you, it's available at Barnes and Noble online, uh, Amazon online, and uh, it's in an audible form. It's in Kindle form and it's in, in, uh, in book form. Fantastic. So, and uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I'm going to put every link and um, whatever mean you can find a book in the description of the episode. So whatever platform you're listening it to, just scroll down a bit. It's all down there. Uh, everything is in there. Again, thank you for your time, Laura. Really appreciate it. It was, a, it was a pleasure to have you on and uh, can't wait to talk to your son. And, you know, and so for those that uh, I've just started, um, we've decided to do uh, it. There's going to be an episode with mama, an episode with the son, and we're going to get together all three of us to kind of do a, a little bit of a post recording Uh, chat about you know like uh, all of that all together and you know like i love the idea and i think you will too so uh yeah appreciate it a lot thank you thank, thank you so much i really look forward to to talking to you again I, thank you it's a great opportunity and i enjoyed our chat very much thank you thank you bye-bye <laughs>